0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: Mobile hunters, are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year? Or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear. If that's the case, then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer, Tethered is your one-stop saddle shop. From saddles to ropes, sticks, ascenders, whatever it is you need, they have you covered. I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons. Now, my base setup consists of the Phantom Saddle and the Predator platform. And if you're wondering why I've chosen to use their gear above all else, here's the Cliff Notes. They're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall. cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear they care about the community that they've created and their gear allows me to hunt free and above all else i like to support good people doing good work if you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game then head to tetherednation.com this podcast is brought to you by skull brew coffee company skull brew coffee roasts premium single origin coffee guaranteed to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep the kicker They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to skullbrewcoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skullbrew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand deer hunting podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 234. Today I'm joined by Matt Moret and David Mitchell from the Pennsylvania Game Commission, so stay tuned. Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine on what is, I think, to be the 16th day of June. It's crazy, man, that we're halfway halfway through June already, and I still have trail cameras to get out. I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but uh, I don't know. I might try to make a valiant effort this weekend. I think it's going to be a little cooler than than the norm, so I'm going to try to, I think, make a run out and see if I can't get the rest of the trail cameras hung. But uh, I'm not going to belabor this up front. We're just going to kind of jump into the, into the podcast. I have... On the show today, a really cool show for you guys have Matt Moret and and David Mitchell from the Pennsylvania State Game Commission. We touched base and wanted to get together and do a podcast. Of course, license sales in Pennsylvania just went on sale on the 14th. They've got a new uh, automated, I won't say automated, but an online system, which I personally think is super rad. Uh, You know, whenever I buy tags for out of state, you know, any other state that I'm going to, I'm typically buying them online. I don't have to travel somewhere to get it you know, and they'll mail me my tag or I can print it out or whatever the case is. So it's nice that I can actually do that for my home state of pencil of Pennsylvania. You still have to mail in your dough, your dough tags, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they recognize that there's some of those things that they're going to continue to tweak and, and and work on and stuff like that. And that really was the tone and tenor of, of our conversation. You know, I think by and large, you know, I don't, you know, all the different states that I've traveled to and hunted and, and, and talking to locals and stuff like that. You know, I, I can't say that I've ever been somewhere where, um, you know, people were a hundred percent super stoked with whatever their governing body of, of wildlife is. Um, that's not to say that they don't do a good job or whatever the case is, but I think it's just kind of, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, I think it's just kind of the way it is. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what sector it is, if it's wildlife or if it's how your, your state's being governed at a, at a, you know, at a, at a more political level, if you will, you know, dealing with more, um, you know, commerce policy or whatever the case, you know, uh, health insurance policy, whatever the case is, you know, you're never a hundred percent satisfied with it. Right. Cause you're always, you, you, the whole thing is a negotiation. You got to give a little to get a little. And I think that's the one thing people have to remember with the state game commission, with the PA state game commission, you know, they're negotiating on our, on our behalf uh, to implement things that, you know, the public is, is asking for um, and they're doing, you know, the, the job that they're kind of set out to do, which is to manage the wildlife across the, across the state. And with that, you know, there's certain things that you can accommodate and there's certain things that you can't and you follow science and the biology of things and, and you put in place, you know, um, acts or limitations on bag limits or extend seasons or shorten seasons or whatever the case is. It's all with an eye toward making sure that the habitat and the wildlife is sustainable, not just for today, uh, but it's a sustainable and is a program that can be leveraged into the future, um, for future generations to use. Um, and that was really the kind of the tone and tenor of our conversation. You know, they're one thing that they're doing that I think is pretty cool. And, and Matt is kind of heading, heading some of this up is, you know, I think in a lot of ways, <clears throat> you know, the game commission probably hasn't had a, an arm of communication, a direct communication to hunters, You know, or what what hunters might feel like has been a direct enough line of communication, um, you know, with them. And that's kind of what they're doing now is they've they've and I don't know exactly how the structure works or I forget. And I think we touch on a little bit in the podcast, but there is a there's kind of segmented into bureaus. And there was one bureau that they've kind of recently split in in one arm of it, you know, in layman's terms, like the marketing arm, if you will, or the communications arm that is really kind of charged with. You know, communicating with hunters and and, and and making sure that, you know, people are in the know as to, you know, when things happen, why things happen and, and, and those sorts of things, which to me is really exciting. And, you know, and they fully admit and recognize that this kind of act or this approach is in its infancy uh, within the within the Bureau. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what you have to do, you know, like in any kind of state run. Uh, you know, system or whatever the case is, is like you have to prove out your effectiveness before you get leeway to grow it and and fund it further to help do additional things. Right. And so, you know, I think we always kind of have to keep in mind that, you know, no matter what the decision is at that level, at the state level, there's a lot of hoops that have to be gone through. And the more support that they get for certain things from their constituents, the more quickly they can make things happen. So at the end of the day, it's really incumbent upon the constituents to voice their opinions Um and provide feedback, provide direction, their likes, their dislikes, et cetera, and, and be a participant in the process and not expect these guys that are doing the work on our behalf to be mind readers and know what we're, know what we're doing. I think we also have to take it with a grain of salt and recognize that there are certain things that we just may not have full grasp of. You know. And that, and that is part of, I think, what they're trying to do is, is unveil some of those things and make sure that there's a line of communication. So there's what seems to be less... Um, uh, less mystery if you will it 's not intentional it's it 's just like anything else you know it, you have to deal with the have to before you can deal with the want to um, They want to have as much transparency as possible, but a lot of times you know the uh um, how things are i don 't want to say staffed but what you have is your priority and what you can feasibly get to uh, within the amount of time that you have to do to do the job and, and the multiple jobs you have to do. Those things don't always coincide, you know, and I think we can all appreciate that in our day to day jobs. There's things every day that I have to do that I do because I have to. And then there's things I would like to do and should do, but just never get to because I'm one person with a a day's worth of work to do. And that's what I can get to. Right. So. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's show. As always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, we are back with another episode of the Truth on the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I'm actually on location. I don't get to do these very often, especially like COVID days really kind of ixnade my uh, my live episodes. It was usually at Harrisburg during the show or at ATA, I would get to see all my buddies, but I'm glad to be out of the house. I'm hanging out at the uh, Pennsylvania State Game Commission office here, right around the Reading area with uh, which I'll refer to as my two new friends, Matt Moret and, uh, and and David Mitchell. How you fellas
2: doing? Good. I'm doing great. Can,
1: can I call you my friends already? Absolutely. Are, are we there? Are
2: we there yet? We traded deer pictures already. I mean, yeah, it, we share the same passion. We got to be friends,
1: right? That's it. Yeah. If if not, then we're uh, then we're doing something doing something wrong. That's right. But uh, now we're here to talk about all things you know Pennsylvania hunting related. Even if you're not from Pennsylvania, and you're listening to this. I think you guys will you guys will dig it, especially you folks from Michigan, because we have a we share a lot of the same kind of common hunting heritage and, and, and things of that nature that kind of cross between the two different states but before we get diving into a bunch of the specific topics i always just kind of like to do an icebreaker and just have you guys kind of you know say who you are where you're from and what you guys do here with the uh, with the game commission so dave you want to kick it off
3: sure uh so, my name is Dave Mitchell. I am the Southeast Region Director. Uh, I just started down here in April, so I've been here about two months. Uh, before that, I was the North Central Region Director for the previous four years and um, been with the Game Commission for 30 years. Started out as a, a game warden and then uh, spent the bulk of my time in land management and uh, covered the Southeast, Southeast, so Bucks, Montgomery uh lehigh northampton county so the area that you're from Clint. Yeah, yeah. and uh yeah it's been a great career i love hunting love wildlife love doing habitat work and uh it's just been a great fit you know for 30 years i've been able to get up every day go to work and doesn't seem like i'm going to work
1: so. right yeah i mean 30 years got to be liking it if you're doing it and doing it that long. you don't
2: love hunting you live hunting uh,
1: Right. Uh, that's a rumor. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you won, if I'm not mistaken, you won an award not too long ago, right? For, uh, was that, was that you that won an award? Did I see it on Facebook. Someone won an award for the Southeast region, like Habitat. No, that
3: management. would have been the guys that won the, um, Phillips award. That would have been, uh, Mark Weiss and the crew over at, okay. uh, Blue Marsh. They put okay. in a bunch of really good dove fields and they're also transitioning away from agriculture into all native habitats over there. Okay. So they're totally changing that 7,000 acres from, you know, something that looks like everything in the southeast to a really premier small game
1: nice uh, hunting area. Awesome. Awesome. And so we have Matt Moret. I'm Am just, I saying your last name right? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. That's that's
2: perfect. That's yeah, most people butcher, but I'm just I just carry Dave's bags. Carried <laughs> Is that quick, what you do? Yes, uh, uh, <laughs> Someone's
1: got to. He right. holds me down when There's we're a turkey lot of hunting. stuff after thirty years. I'm sure you got a lot of stuff.
2: Well, I'll be honest with you, you know, again, Matt Moret, I'm I'm from central Pennsylvania and been around the hunting circles pretty much all my life. I got started in the outdoor industry because of turkey calling and competed on a national level for a lot of years and worked in the private industry for almost 30 years and an opportunity came in 2019. Uh, I was looking through social media, you know, felt like a kid had my face glued to the the phone on an airplane or something. And I saw this opportunity for a marketing position at the Pennsylvania game commission. I wasn't really looking for a job at the time. And, uh, I thought, you know what, how cool would it be to be able to give back to the state that I love and to the sport that has given so much to me in my career. And, and um, so I applied, I never applied for a job in my life, never had an interview, (laughs) never did a resume. And they called me and then I'm like, Oh man, this is getting real. It's getting real. Yeah. Long story short, I'm 51 years old this year. It's the best career decision I've ever made. This is by far, I tell everybody this, this is the coolest job that I've ever had. And I've had some cool jobs. I mean, I've got to Turkey hunt in every state out there, got to deer hunt all over the country for a living. And to come in and be able to promote what the Pennsylvania Game Commission does, and and the day that I walked through that those doors, April nineteenth of twenty nineteen, I've never looked back. But I've I've learned something every day. And Dave, Dave honestly has been a big help to us in our now bureau. Um, you know, when you've been here thirty years, there's a lot that goes on. And when you want to lay the facts on the table, I called Dave and I said, you know. How do we look at this? And, and he gives me he gives us every angle. Not just, I mean, I'm I'm not just saying that because he's here, because there's so many people that helped. And uh we're having fun. We're building a team, uh, a marketing and strategic communications um bureau for the game commission. So many folks think that nobody likes to hunt at the game. They were not hunters. But right. Let me tell you something. There's not too many people inside the walls, no matter if you're in Harrisburg or down here in the southeast they're working here because they love what's going on out there. And, and, you know, sometimes it's misunderstood. And the, and the best thing for us is every one of us there are trying to leave it better than we found it. When we, when we decided that our time to retire is, is coming And And, and, uh, I think no matter how much money you make or when you wake up and love your job every day, there's something to be said about that. Yeah. And I think that's
1: an important, you know, important point. I think you definitely hit a point in, in, in life at some point, at least I know I did, where you start to realize that <clears throat> things you know are more important than just the here and now than you know than me going out and killing a big deer or whatever right it becomes what are you kind of leaving behind or what you know what impact am i having long term it doesn't mean that i have to see like an impact immediately necessarily but just knowing that i that i'm doing my part right whether it's getting a new hunter into hunting or whether it's You know, helping support, you know, conservation efforts, whether it's through pledging dollars or showing up to volunteer or whatever the case is, you know, I think that a lot of those things kind of go unsaid, you know, a a lot of times. And I think you oftentimes need the perspective of age, you know, to to gain that, because I could I'd say in my 30s, you know, 20s and 30s, like I wasn't there necessarily until I got into my later 30s, had my daughter and then started thinking about what kind of place am I going to leave her? Right. You know, and I think that's, you know, the important work that you guys do, you know, beyond just, you know, managing the the wildlife and what people know you for. Right. As the, as the game commission, when they think of game commission, the first thing they would think of. Right. But it's, it's more than just that. Right. Oh, absolutely.
2: But, it, 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 the biggest thing and, and this is a tough thing that, that every day that you try to understand, even for myself, I've I've been on the outside. I've I've heard all the things that sound great. But, you know, when you try to look at the future. It's tough to look at the future as a hunter. I mean, I'm just being honest. And yeah. and the word conservation gets thrown around so much out there. And, and, and I, I, I think I know what the definition is, but I'm still learning every day. But, you know, for instance, I'm going to ask you a question. I asked this the other day, and it it it, it floors people, and you may know. But how many birds and, and mammals do you think the Game Commission is responsible for? If you I'll, had to take a wild If I
1: guess? had to take a wild guess, I would say <laughs> – <laughs> I was going to say upwards of, of, uh, over 200, but he did. Uh, yeah. That's
2: bull crap. You got somebody yeah. flashing the answers, right? Everything's scripted, right? Dave, right. everything's scripted. That's what I heard. Right. He
1: flashed before 10, but I was going with my honest answer, which w- what hit my mind initially was like up over 200. I was thinking probably like two forty, two fifty. Right. But Right.
2: Most people think it's 25 or 30 and that's the ones you buy a hunt license for, but our responsibility is way bigger than that. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, i'm sorry it's for it's 480 actually. yeah well i was trying
3: to do but yeah i'm not good with sign language <laughs> <I got> you. <laughs> you know but clint when you're when you were talking about that it's something that and this is something that affected me a long time ago when it's our training school because i got a job with the game commission i liked to hunt i was 22 years old and like i had all the answers and i go through the training school and i suddenly realized how connected everything is because like mm-hmm. as a hunter all you want is more deer Right. I want more deer, I want more deer, I want more deer. But then you go out and you see the effect that deer have on the forest. And then you realize not only do they have an effect on the forest, but they can actually change what the forest is going to look like in the future. So you have these really healthy, productive forests. But if you allow the deer to eat everything, they're going to go from you know, oak and hickory that are really good for all wildlife to birch and maple, which are not really good for all wildlife. And you might say, well, who cares? You know, my lifetime, it's not going to matter. But like your daughter or your daughter, when they want to go hunting, like how many turkeys are going to live in that forest? Not a lot. So it's a really big picture thing. And we have to find that happy medium where everything works. Together.
1: Right. Yeah, I think, again, going back to like when you gain when you have age or experience might be a better way to say it. Right. You start to gain some of that perspective where it doesn't matter if it's hunting or something else. You start to quickly realize everything is kind of interconnected in some way, shape or form. Right. It's like, you know, I know, like as I got older, as I, you know not to get all hippy dippy, but as I felt even more in love with bow hunting, as I got older, it became for more intrinsic reasons that it was just like the chase necessarily. Right. It's like, it's kind of where I found peace. It found like my stress release from, you know, a stressful job, or if I just needed a place to go to be by myself to think it, it provided me all those things. Right. And, and,
2: so don't think too hard. A big buck will walk up underneath. Well, like white- yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't, don't
1: fool yourself. It's definitely happened. But it, it becomes like a, it becomes more important than just the just the hunt to a degree. Sure. Right. And and in that way, it becomes even more part of the fabric of who you are, because like hunting, if you really think about it and you compartmentalize your life to a degree, it's like. You're a dad or a husband or you know wife or a boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever you are, and then you're a dad and then you're a, a colleague or a coworker or whatever. Right? You have all these kind of sections, right? The one kind of thing that kind of interconnected all those things for me was being in the woods because it was where I could kind of put everything in the right places, right? You know what I mean to a, to a degree, um, which you know my wife might say that
2: it's the thing that makes me nuts and makes me have problems everywhere else. <laughs> well, you, but you look at age and and some people might not agree with this, but when you're twenties and thirties, you got blood squirting out of your eyes. Mm-hmm. Literally. You want to kill everything. Yeah. You just think, you know, and as you all of a sudden you realize it's like, man, it's, it's way more than this. It's like, I'm sitting in a deer stand in God's creation and there's mm-hmm. a squirrel and there's some kind of Tweety bird that I don't have no idea what it is, but I'm going to look it up when I get home. What's making that sound. And when you really take it all in like that, there's nothing like it in the world. No. I mean, it's just, there's, there's just so much more to it. And honestly, for myself, when I heard a turkey gobble, I wanted to call him up. I mean, that was – but now it's just a whole different experience. And, and, you know, what we've learned from every different bureau, like we went out with the Foresters, the mar- you know, when we were division, and they had a – you know, and these guys were getting excited about these little s- stuff that's growing underneath. W- w- nobody's ever paid attention to it, and they're fired up and explaining this, and there's so much that goes on that, that we don't realize. The, yep. that, uh, the public doesn't realize. I mean, yeah. I'm going to say this, and he's going to laugh. But one of the first, He's mix- smirking. Yeah, because they they, wait- they have a bet on when it's coming out. But I'm going to just go ahead and, and let it rip. So a year ago, last May, he took me to a place in McKean County, Northwest PA, and it's called Latham's Acre. It's an acre that was clear cut in 1950, and then high fenced. There's never been a deer. There's never been anything in there, and whatever was native in 1950 is growing in there, and hmm. it's unbelievable. And then you walk outside that that acre, that's high fenced. And you look, and it looks like you're on Mars because yeah. that's what deer population has done to our woods. Where you have all right. these beautiful flowers that, and I don't even know what you call them. What are they called? Trillium. Trillium. Trilliums. Yeah. And I mean, some kind of dogwood. What's that dogwood? Uh, opposite leaf. Uh,
3: yeah, opposite leaf dogwood. There. I mean, there's a lot of different types. Of, it's just an. It's just a healthy forest. Right. Right. In the middle of you know, an area that had been, and, and it's not that it's a bad forest. It's just different. And right. And it, like I was taught, that's the same place where I had like my epiphany, you know, it's, when I was 22 years old, I was just like, holy cow. The first thing I thought is, geez, people at the game commission, like, like, I didn't know that. Right. And, and you can't dispute it. Cause you're standing there looking at it. And it's like, right. huh, these guys might know what they're talking about. And, you know, then you kind of open up your mind and you start looking at this stuff and it's just like,
2: huh. You know, cause we think, you know, Oh, we're having a good acorn crop deer, you know, got plenty to eat, but deer eat way more than we can even imagine. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, when people, you know, get in their own kind of, uh, narrowly focused kind of opinions about the game commission or whatever it is, right. It's, it's because they're looking at it of what, out of what they want personally. Right. Versus what is in the best interest of the, of, you know, the whole totality, right? Like, so it's like, what's in the best interest of the deer herd long-term, what's in the best interest of the habitat for us long-term and stuff like that. And I think that for me was what kind of, you know, changed my perspective on, on hunting, right. To a, to a degree was we had a farm back home, did some, you know, habitat work at the farm and stuff like that food plots, just like your normal stuff or whatever. And then I started kind of just hunting specifically public land. And so I was having to really seek out, the areas that we're going to have all the things that deer or turkeys or whatever we're going to need to, to live. And you would quickly see and figure out what had it and what didn't right. Especially there's a big woods piece in Pennsylvania that I've been scouting. And it's just, it's, it's so drastically different than most of the stuff that i hunt in pennsylvania because it's almost feels like it's in the Poconos. it almost i've never been to the adirondacks in new york have some friends who live in that area but it feels like what they kind of talk about where there's pockets up there where you feel like there would never be a deer because like the habitat is just so void of what they would want to use right but then you hit these little pockets where it's like a clear cut and a burn was done and it's like boom that's all the deer sign. Right. right? And so it really kind of shows you like that balance is really what's required to have, you know, homeostasis between what the forest
2: needs, what the deer need, what the turkeys need and what all those 478 other things right right, that live there. Yeah. One of my first trips, we went and looked at a habitat piece that was done and, you know, and and we got all done. and And another thing that we don't realize is Pennsylvania hunters, the whole project on game lands was funded by um, the Wild Bird Conservancy, right? American Bird American Conservancy, Bird Conservancy. Mm. and it was for golden wing warblers. But that project helped so many species, including the species that we all love to hunt. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, we don't realize the partners out there that that help us as hunters yeah. all, as well.
3: Yeah. And getting back to what you were saying about, you know, those big wood sections, if you're not hunting within a couple hundred yards of active management of some sort, generally up there, it's going to be a timber sale or, yeah. you know, some timbering work. There's huge chunks of, of, you know, areas that have very, very little deer sign, you yeah. know, low populations. But then you get to an area where there's management, and there's a lot of deer. Yeah. So if you continually go to the same spot and hope for something, it's probably not going to work. Well, but when especially you, if
2: you can see 500 yards. Right. I mean, yes. that's, that's, that's one of the issues is we're so traditional. I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off, but, no. you know, you hunt, and I grew up like this. My grandpa hunted the same tree his whole... End of his hunting career. He'd go to the same spot every day, opening day. If he'd go the first Saturday, he'd go to the same spot. And, you know, eventually he didn't see the deer he did when he first went there. Well, things change. I mean, look at us. You you go back to the town you grew up in. Looks different. Looks different. The habitat changes. And that's what I always try to tell people.
1: Like, you know, if I'll get a message, you know, you know, someone asking me about something because, you know. I'm sure I'll get some after this one, right? Like, you know, Pennsylvania, I haven't seen deer on a piece of public land in 20 years or whatever. It's like I've heard, I've gotten those messages in the past. And what I always tell them is that if exactly what you, what you just said, right? It's like the, the forest is an ever-changing thing. It doesn't stay in, in, in traction, right? It's going to evolve, right? And so you have to think about it through, if you're deer hunting specifically, right? You have to think about it through the deer's lens of like, what is it gaining from that wherever you're at, why are they there? And then think about why they're not there. Is it because you were hunting the edge of a clear cut when it was two, three, four years old, when it was good and good bedding? Yeah. Going to see deer, especially if you're hanging out along the edge of it. You probably saw a lot of deer year 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. It's pretty thick now. Not real great for bedding. The food's up above their head, right? It's like, so now it's like time to shift and move off and figure out where their deer went. They're still there. They just went somewhere else. And it's your job as the hunter to hunt them, right? Yeah. And that's kind of how, how I think about it, right? And it's not a I don't think it's a mean-spirited thing, but it's like you got to be you got to be willing to evolve as a as a hunter to well, a degree correct. to have success
2: consistently. I relate it to human beings. If you have a favorite restaurant that you went to for 10 years and it closes down and you go find another favorite restaurant on the in an opposite town, you're <laughs> going to change your habits. It's the it. same exact thing that a deer's going to do. Yeah. Right, or a turkey or anything, yeah. squirrels, grouse, whatever.
3: And and to speak to that you just have to be smart, too. The second week of deer season, like Matt came up and we hunted a, a section of public land up in north-central Pennsylvania last year. Second week of rifle season. A lot of deer signed up on the top where there were clear cuts and, and active management. But the deer really weren't up there because that's where people could park. Pressure. And right. pressure. So those deer bailed off those tops. So we bailed off the top, got the wind right, got down a couple benches. and no, he, no, it,
2: he's, he's sugarcoating it. That was as close to the devil. I think I might have solved the. The devil
3: was that, that before <laughs> or after those nice bucks came by? Uh, well, they kind of eased
2: the pain, but that was one of—I mean, I felt like I was hunting in New Mexico, right? You know, I mean, it, I didn't, except I could breathe because we weren't that hot. right.
1: You weren't at eight thousand foot or twelve, but we were feet. in
2: some rough country. But guess what? Second week of buck season, and we're going to you know, be in we rough country. Saw what six
3: bucks that day allegedly i don't know i I can't believe that because there's no way there's six bucks left on public land in pennsylvania oh, i saw six bucks
1: <laughs> just so everyone out there knows that was that was, was a little bit of sarcasm if you didn't pick up on it yeah. a little game cushion i saw sarcasm. six bucks
3: and
2: i had i had been fortunate and, and found one in archery season so i was throwing rocks at him right. So it was pretty fun
3: we were trying to fill matt's dota i was tagged out and a friend of ours who will remain nameless might have missed one of those bucks oh yeah relatively close range with a scope no, no, 270
2: Steve <laughs> Ferrari, i didn't mention your name <laughs> now, did you cut him, now, did, now, now did you cut his shirt tail off that's the question no because right? he uh, he already tried to kill me going in there i didn't want him to kill me coming out right, right.
3: there you <laughs> but, go. but but it goes to show that there are deer on public land you just have to go to where they are when you want to hunt them
1: yeah no i 100 percent agree with that because i you know like I said, I had a we had a have a family farm still. We have two actually. My dad has a piece, and my father in law has a piece, and so we got plenty of land back in you know Bedford County to hunt if I wanted to go back there. Um, but the fact that the matter was, was like public was just really appealing to me because I had larger boundaries mm-hmm. and I could I could actively go hunt because I had a deer. People listen to this podcast heard me tell this story a hundred times, but there was a deer that I had patterned pretty well on the farm. I knew what his, his deal was. Told my father in was like I had four encounters with him at the end of the. the I don't remember what year it was, maybe 2016 or something like that. Right after Christmas, late season, had four encounters with him. He just was slightly out of range. And I was like, I got this guy's number, glassed him in a field, watched him come in, saw what wind he was using. I was like, man, he is dead opening day. If I get the right conditions, got the right conditions set up. Sure enough, he showed up. I didn't expect him to be bachelored up. He came in with like uh, two other bucks. One got up underneath me and winded me. He stayed in like a little bit of brush. I needed like three more yards and he would have got stuck. And it was right then and there because I knew where he was bedded. I knew he was bedded on the neighbors on this creek bottom, right? And I just couldn't get over there. I didn't have permission to hunt it. And so that was right then and there. I was like, all right, you know what? I knew where that deer was for two years, and I couldn't go kill him because I, he was bedded on the neighbors. So I fixed that by just going and hunting public where I have larger boundaries, and I can go hunt that deer that when I when I know he's there. And I'm I'm in an area that typically people would say wouldn't be good for bigger deer, Right. Truth be told, last year, and I've said this on the podcast, it's like I had, I had the best deer in Pennsylvania in my life last year to hunt and multiple. I had probably four deer that were between one thirty and one sixty. Oh wow! Last yeah. year, all on public land.
3: If, you know, if you look at some of the research that we that we've done, you know, in conjunction with Penn State, the age class of our bucks, and and, and that research is being done in North Central Pennsylvania, but our age class will rival that of. All the places that you were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, mm-hmm. it's there.
2: Um, and the fact that we have 900,000 hunters, yeah. which none of those states have to deal with. That's no. one of the things that, you know, when we we do hear from the public, it's like, why don't you do it like, especially turkey season, like, why don't you do it like so-and-so or so-and-so? What's Ohio? Oh, We have 243. Plus thousand turkey hunters. Ohio only has 300,000 licensed hunters. Right. You know, it's a, that's the yeah. whole other landscape of the management program that the Game Commission has, you know, we have to take into consideration is we're pushing a million hunters. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. But
3: we still have five, six, seven year old bucks out there to hunt.
2: Yeah. For sure.
3: Which is, but, but the difference is they're not as visible. You know, like you go out to Iowa, you can darn near find every buck that's out there in the summer by glassing some bean fields. Yeah. When you're in Pike County or Tioga County, unless you're in that broken farm country when you're in those big chunks of forest there are no bean fields to glass yeah there's they're not right next to a road so you got to figure out how you're going to get back in three miles and then figure out where's that deer feeding in july and august yep to to see what's there Pl- yeah
2: plus total anecdotally that's a new word i learned there you go um our deer smarter I mean, just hey, bottom I, line, I, I mean, I ain't going to lie, the, man. The it's... pressure that we put on him makes our deer cagier. And you get a three-year-old deer,
1: you get a three-year-old deer in Pennsylvania. He, he knows the game. Mm-hmm. He, he's been well-educated sure. in, in his three years. You know, I was just actually talking to a buddy of mine about that on a previous, uh, a previous podcast where we were just kind of talking about the fact that, you know, especially whenever it comes to using wind, we were talking about using the wind specifically and, you know, how, you know, it takes us you know, however many years as a hunter till you really start to understand wind and thermals. And some guys do it more quickly than others. And I was, I basically said to him, it was really probably two, three years ago for me where it finally clicked. And I didn't have to think about my prevailing and my thermals any longer. I could just get to a spot and go, all right, my prevailing is this, this is what time of day it is. This is, you know, the side of this ridge I'm on. This is what the thermals are probably going to do around this time. And I can set up for it. Right. And don't have to analyze it too much. And I was like, a deer is doing that like this because he's, lives it every day, right. right? He's a three-year-old deer. It's like you might get a three-year-old that maybe uses a wrong wind once or twice, you know? He doesn't have to do it too often to figure out he shouldn't do it anymore, right? I was like, but you get those four- and five-year-old bucks, they're not using a wrong wind. Like, if they're tailwinding something, there's a reason they're tailwinding something, there's right? There's only it's
2: a like... couple things that are going to make him make a mistake, and one's food, and the other one is the yeah, yeah, that's it.
3: But the key is you have to find a spot Where he thinks he has the wind, but he doesn't have it. And those are few and far between, but when you can find one that works, when I think back of all the, you know, bucks that I've killed, a lot of them, you know, deer were killed on a spot where he should have had the wind, but he almost had it.
1: Or he had to give up the wind to make it through this little obstacle or whatever that he yep. couldn't get around or whatever, right? It's like all those critical critical little things. But let's dive into like something that pi- people might want to say is controversial or whatever because I think in part – you know, I won't say I
2: I'll, – I'll use your word anecdotally.
1: Right There you go. go to you.
2: I get told <laughs> that a lot. Like, like, no, nope, that's anecdotal. Because one thing about the biology field, they have more data. Like you don't want to go – battle a biologist because he's not going <laughs> to tell you He's going to show you he's, if it's if it's if it's a definite he's going to show you the information and the data that's a definite
1: right yeah so i'll say anecdotally you know i'm a fan of the antler point restrictions um just because i grew up where i grew up you didn't you didn't see a lot of rack bucks just in general right the biggest one i'd ever i shot a six point when i was probably like 15 that was the biggest deer i'd ever shot Back home, drive it know. around for a week. Because oh man, yeah, yeah. And yeah. yeah. well, now my uncle shot a seven point same out of my spot like the next day or whatever. That was the biggest deer I'd ever seen, you know, on, on our property or whatever. Um, and now, you know, just anecdotally, again, from running trail cameras and being a hunter and being in the woods a lot and glassing when I have the chance to, and there's an area that I can glass and stuff like that, I'm seeing more big deer or bigger deer consistently than I've ever, than I've ever seen. And it's really been, especially I think like the past couple of years, like I've really seen, I don't know what it was, but like, it seems like the past couple of years, even in areas where you would think there aren't good deer, right? Like I know when you get out to the Alleghenies and stuff like that, I have some buddies that hunt out there, you know, my one buddy killed a, a giant out there this year. Right. And he shows me truck camera pictures and he has giants on camera every year. Right. And that's just, Rugged country, get age on them so they can get big, but I'm in an area that's pretty suburban, so the biggest block of public might be two thousand acres roughly right, and a lot of them are maybe three hundred acres, four hundred acres, five hundred acres, whatever the case is, and I'm still seeing deer that in most states I would pull my bow back on unless I was in one of those Iowa or Kansas or whatever, but even even in some of those states I had you know this past year the one like it, it would have got shot in any one of those states, mm-hmm. you know. And so, and I'm a firm believer that I think like, you know, requiring or having antler point restrictions has pr- given us an opportunity for people who want to chase bigger deer
2: gives them the opportunity to do that in Pennsylvania. I think the, the education that it's created alone, mm-hmm. you know, cause when I was a kid, Everybody thought it was either born a spike or a 10-point. They didn't know it needed birthdays to get big and old. Right. I mean, I can't tell you how many bucks. Even today, sometimes somebody goes, hey, look how old he is. He has a gray face, but he weighs 120 pounds. <laughs> you know, and it's just, it. I'm not saying that buck can't be old, but most likely it's a year-and-a-half-old buck. I mean, right. And from my perspective, and I'll let Dave carry on because he's been through this whole deal back when Gary Alt needed bulletproof vests to go talk about it's crazy. What's going on, and and, it, and not only that, it's just healthier for our deer herd yeah. to have that age structure. Yeah,
3: it is, and I, I believe there's a couple things uh, at play there. You know, one of them is. We do have antler point restrictions, but I think over time people have also started to embrace the idea of, of hunting, you know, bigger, older, more mature bucks. So they're even passing deer that, Mm -hmm. you know, are six pointers or seven pointers, or maybe they're, you know, two years old hoping to hold out for a bigger deer. And and some of that comes from the point of, you know, like I hate when people give trophy hunting a bad name because Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily about the trophy. It's more about your challenge to yourself. Right. So, you know, someone like like you who puts a lot of time in scouts all the time, like, like, you know, you could probably go out and kill a six point in just a few sets. Mm -hmm. So to extend your season, to extend your time in the woods, you may pick a goal of, of whatever that may be, whether it's the age or the size of the deer, just to extend your time so you can go sit in a tree stand or in your you know, saddle and decompress and, mm-hmm. and relax and enjoy nature. And it gives you that reason to be out there. So I think a lot more people have, have started looking at that too. And, and, you know, we're a one buck state, so you can only go mm-hmm. one buck. And, uh, you know, if you look at the opportunities that are afforded to us now, you know, we have more time to hunt. It goes longer into the rut. And, uh, I love pe- that
1: too. That's-
3: yeah, it's It's a great thing. And, Mac uh, Matt killed his buck that i did that extended week this year and um you know so we have more opportunity so it allows you to be a little bit more selective Mm -hmm. and in doing that you know all those bucks that aren't getting killed at one or two or three years old get a chance to turn into four and five and and six year olds and some of them are going to grow really big racks
2: if a five or six point is is what you want there's i mean
3: there's nothing wrong Let with that. Rip. There's yeah. not a thing
2: wrong. With That's that. just it. I'm,
1: you know, whatever it is that gets your rocks off, I'm all, I'm all for it. You know, and but I do agree. I think you know, you know, there's been a lot of, um I think people understanding the value of having a balanced herd in terms of age structure. Like it, it does. Not only do you see bigger, bigger deer, more mature deer, and I don't want people to think it's all about big deer because it's not necessarily what it's what it's all about. But when you have that balance, right you start getting deer doing deer things, which is like, which is, is to me is like the end all be all right. Cause there was a hunt I did in Ohio, um, you know, that it was one of the first times that I had truly seen deer do deer things and and their balance of their numbers in the area I was at was like actually pretty good. The age structure was good to where they were, there was going to be some competition for does. And so there was some sparring, there was some ripping up of trees. It was just like the normal, rut activity you would watch on like a TV show somewhere. It's like I I solve it. Cool thing is now is like I'm seeing it here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Where it's like I'm getting that balance now to where like the numbers are a little bit better, the age structure is a little bit better, like where the deer are having to compete a little bit for breeding rights or to lay down sign or whatever the case is. And that to me is just that's exciting.
2: Let me shift gears on what you just said there for a second because we're facing it right now with our with turkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing, and I'm not gonna get. Way in the weeds on it, but like right now we've had three, four, five years of hatches and recruitment. That's not been real good because of weather, mainly cold, mm-hmm. wet springs. So you're dealing with older gobblers. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have any young gobblers, any two-year-olds out there showing their oats, that four-year-old gobbler is a tough dude. He's going right. to be tough to call up. He's going to be with those hens.
3: They don't want to be a TV
2: star. No, they don't <laughs> want to be. They're not kamikazes. I had a guy. I was talking to a guy this morning. He goes, "Yeah, I don't know what happened. I had my kid out, and there was some turkeys gobbling, and one came up there strutting. He poked up over the hill and he just walked by at forty yards. I'm like, it's a drive by. He's gotten his butt whooped. He's a mm-hmm. younger subordinate gobbler, probably, maybe not even younger. He's not saying a word. He's trying to go in there and you know slick one of those hens out of there and get out of there before." the big boy shows up and the same is in the, in the deer world. When you have that competition and weather can help too. When you have some colder weather during that month, the, the, when you experience the rut, it's like that magical, there's a couple of days in there that are just for any bow is oh, or man. deer hunter is magical. Oh yeah, for sure.
1: I mean, and now would you say, I, cause I, I know, you know, a lot of the Turkey hunters I talked to this year and this was not just in Pennsylvania, but definitely in, in PA they had a rough year where they were just like, had a hard hard time getting them to come in, you know, and it was just like guy after guy. A couple of them who I know are really good turkey turkey hunters just struggled. I'm a terrible turkey hunter. I'm the first one to admit it. I basically take the gun and walk and end up deer scouting. That's what I.
2: That's yeah, what I hey, end up. You're you're giving it a try. That's, yeah, all, yeah. that's
1: that's what I end up doing. But is there anything to that as far as like you know some of the struggles we've had with like the the hatch or the recruitment or whatever kind of playing into like this year was a tough year because you just. You don't have that balance that you typically would have.
2: It 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 does make it tougher. I mean, here's the here's the bottom line in my opinion, as a hunter. When there's not a lot of two year olds, you gotta pack your lunch because you gotta you got your work cut out for you. I right. mean, those hens are getting bred, they're getting bred by more mature birds. Mm-hmm. And you know, as a rule is those hens and gobblers get together, you're not gonna pull them away from them. Right. And, Nothing and, like the real thing. Right. I mean, it's just not gonna happen. And when you when you have good hatches, um, like this year, a lot of the state is you know we're in our 17 year cicada. Yeah, you know this year, like in our country, and it's deafening right now. The turkeys that were, were I saw crops just full of cicadas, and it's keeping the nest predators out of the nest. And it, we should have a great hatch. Weather's been perfect mm-hmm. for that. So two years from now, it might be some of the, it. You know, we might rival some of those states that you hear about hearing you know 15, 20 gobblers a morning. Mm-hmm. I I can tell you firsthand. Traveling the country like alabama when when it's recruitment's tough and you're, you're dealing with old turkeys they're not easy and that's right. in my opinion that's one of the one of the biggest challenges i mean if we went out there and yelped and a turkey ran into us every time we yelped it wouldn't be any fun and that's the other thing i mean <laughs> right you know it, just because it worked one time doesn't mean it's going to work forever and that's the beauty of turkeys you know turkey right. hunting we are we are below goal mm-hmm. you know in population and we're working real hard to get back there you know, this year w- was implemented in the fall season, and it's been a little controversial. We've been one of the states that has still allowed rifles for fall turkey season. Yeah. And when you look at the statistics, the the only way to control the turkey population biologically is to control the hens. Right. Um, we can shoot the gobblers. We're in good shape in the spring. All those hens, the the hens that are going to nest and have young ones are going to be able to be bred. That's why our season's in. You know, after Breeding, I mean, mm-hmm. peak breeding season. So we get all those hens to the nest that are going to have a nest. And that's one, another thing folks don't realize. Not every hen is a mama hen. Right. You know, especially the jennies. Even some of the adults, they don't all have that mother instinct. So, you know, we have a lot of things going in our favor. There's a lot of states following our model. You know, one of the biggest things we hear. I mean, we hear it all the time. And I've been on that side of the coin. Our season's way too late. What is the date today? June 14th? The uh, 14th, yeah. Yeah. Or... You know, mid June, I heard turkey gobble this morning. Um, gobbled like his brains out. And I mean, right.
3: But getting back to your question, Sorry, I think I got way off tangent. That's no. I'm okay. about a lot turkeys. Of turkeys. I think a lot of it depends on what area of the state you're hunting. Some mm-hmm. areas, you know, populations are down. Uh, some areas they're not so southwestern some parts of western pa have really good turkey numbers and because of that guys are having you know some really good successful hunts mm-hmm. uh some of the areas here in eastern pennsylvania northeastern pennsylvania you know the numbers are not as high as they were four five six years ago less turkeys makes for tougher you know, hunting tougher hunting yeah. so i think some of that but just what, depends
1: what on i love though is that you guys are you know you're you're taking an active role in trying to solve things and, and by and large like you you take heat
2: for it too <laughs> you know what you're, i mean like, you, you're you, damned if you do you're damned right. if you don't i'm just i mean that's but i've sometimes. always said
1: it's like if you're not pissing some people off then you're not trying you're probably not doing a good job right it's like and that's kind of how i look at it right because you guys you know in in my mind have had have made some some decisions and put some things forward that i'm personally a, f- a fan of you know that has ruffled the feathers certainly of like the um culture cultural heritage folks right of of pennsylvania right um and i get where they're coming from you know it's you know let's just talk about sunday hunting for example right like i never in my wildest dreams would have thought a hunter would want fewer days to hunt so i was actually my mind was blown whenever i saw it get as much resistance as it as it got you know I, i guess can you talk a little bit about just like that experience the resistance and like did you like what was the root of it or did you ever get to the root of what the resistance was? And like, how do we, how do we kind of solve it?
3: Well, I think with anything, anytime there's change, people are afraid of what could happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, sh- I mean, some of the hunters, you know, they, I think, you know, most of our hunters were in favor of Sunday hunting, but a lot of the landowners, they don't know, like, you know, is our property going to be overrun and and mm-hmm. like all those things that are pretty much unfounded, you know, last year was, was not an issue. Like mm-hmm. we did not run into a whole lot of problems of of having those landowner hunter conflicts on Sunday. Um so it's just that fear of the unknown. I think is is what a lot of the problems stem mm-hmm. from. And after we have a few years of of having Sunday hunting, you know, I'm hopeful that that we can go to where the agency can regulate all Sundays, not just mm-hmm. the 3 that we have, but that would take legislative action right uh to remove the prohibition on it. So I believe that that's just, you know, I remember the first time I shot a deer, like I was in Montana and I killed a deer on Sunday and I, I was just like, oh my gosh, like what's going to happen? Well, <laughs> you thought you were poaching. Yeah, <laughs> nothing happened because everybody in Montana hunts seven days a week, you know, right, but it was right. just my Pennsylvania brain. It was like hard to fathom that I'm out here actually hunting on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. I so,
2: felt like that in Pennsylvania this year when I got to sit, get in a tree stand in, on a Sunday in bow season, I'm like, this isn't right, you know, cause we're just so used to I it. I had to check multiple times to make sure it was the right, like, you know what I mean? Cause <laughs> I right like, I
1: don't want to be out here and like, you know, arrow a deer and then be taking it back in my kayak. And then all of a sudden someone's like, Hey, what are you doing? I'm like, Hey, hunting." hunt nuts on right. so I can hunt today. And they're like, wrong one, bud. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was not what I wanted to hear, you know? So I was like incessantly checking, going back to the website, looking at my phone, like, okay, it's the right day. I'm pretty sure, you know, and that was actually, I had a great encounter and, uh, I screwed the pooch on one. We won't, I've talked about that already. I did
2: the same thing. My goal was, like, if I told myself if a legal buck comes in the first Sunday, I'm going to try to have some back straps on the grill, but uh, I sailed one right over one's back. But I'm glad I I did because that old, when I moved to Iowa, I told you I lived in Iowa. Yeah. You know, I get out there, and here's a guy from Pennsylvania that the biggest deer I've ever seen. The hoof is probably you know 120 inches, and, and that was world record to me. And I'm mm-hmm. seeing these farmers have these giants laying in the wood pile. And this is before Juries and Lee and Tiff. This is back in you know the early 90s when. And uh, one old timer said, "You want to know how to kill a 180? You know, I'm all ears." Right. I'm 22 years old. I said, "Heck yeah!" He's like, "You got to pass up 150s," and he's right. I mean, yeah. just like you, you said you, you shot your biggest deer, and then a couple mm-hmm. days later, your uncle killed a bigger one. Well. Yeah. That's that's how it works. I mean, yep. and uh, but I think we get to getting to Sundays or anything changes so tough in Pennsylvania. We're such a traditional state. We are. I mean, look at today, mm-hmm. opening of license hunting license sales. Yep. People and we're in a new system. Yep. So you know, there's some kinks, and we're working around the clock to get things fixed. But people were lined up here. They were lined up in Harrisburg. They were lined up at their favorite hunting store. When hunting license going on sale, there's not that many people that are going to hunt groundhogs tonight.
3: Heck, there were people online last night at midnight buying their hunting yeah. licenses. But mm-hmm. it's
2: just that opening things are open, and we want that buzz. That's, we yep. we love that. I love. I mean, you you cut any of our arms in, in here right now, and a PA hunter blood's going to run <laughs> out of because <them> <laughs> right. that's what we. Get. And I've been able to travel the country and hunt all over the place, and before I even. I don't even have to ask another Pennsylvanian where they're from when they start talking. Cause, cause you can just feel that PA yep. tradition as a hunter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I got on to I got on this morning before work and got all my tags and got my, 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 uh, preference point for, for an elk tag and, you know, did everything I needed to do. And, it took me one shot and I was good. Like I, said, so I went, you know, you can use me as like the test example, right? I went through and did what I needed to do and it went off without a hitch. I got my tags and I'm good to go. I can print out the ones I can print out the ones that have to go to the fulfillment center. PDF told me which ones will be mailed to me and it will be, we'll be good to go. But I think that's really exciting. The elk aspect of things where like the, a, we're boosting the numbers a little bit right this year, as far as like the opportunities, if I'm not yes. mistaken.
3: Yeah. The, this year for the first time, there's uh, bull elk tags in the late season. Uh, So all three seasons, archery, the general season, and the late season all have bull hunting opportunities. And uh, we also increased the number of overall tags as well. 20, 20 more bull
2: tags this year.
3: Yeah, we've been able to uh, – and I'll speak to this because this I is, work – This is close to your heart. Oh, my God. I love elk. I just <laughs> – I mean, I I cannot wait for September. I'm going to Wyoming. Oh, so. man. Yeah, I've
1: got to do it once. I went to Montana, and it's like I'm still itching to get back. There's – you said you talked to a Pennsylvania hunter, and it's like that hunting – that heritage just pours out. I have such a hard time giving up my whitetail hunt that I've – like I, I can't just – Cause my wife's is like you can do one or the other, essentially, right? Cause it's like I'm gone for a while and whatever. Yeah, I've never like, hunt
3: whitetails again.
2: Oh man, I can't. See, like, I can't. I won't even tell you my nickname for elk. And I've been able to hunt elk a lot of places. I'm with you. I yeah. love whitetails.
1: Yeah, I'm the same way. Where it's like I love the, the the elk hunt. I can't wait to go do it again. But like, there's just something about seeing a big Iowa buck or like a big PA buck or a Kansas buck or high. Like I don't care where it's at. You know what I mean? It's it just. Doing the, hunting the rut somewhere. Put me in a tree anytime the first two weeks of November and I'm, I'm happy as can be.
2: I go to Zoo America and see a white-tailed deer and That was a box of rocks and it gets me fired up.
1: I see him walk driving down the road. My wife gets so mad because I'll just see like a doe along the road, and be like, "Deer," you mm-hmm. know, and I'll point <laughs> and I'll, I'll take my eyes off the road and, and scope it out. She gets so mad at me, but I can't not see a deer and like call it out and right. get all excited about it.
3: I don't know when that big old bull's just screaming and snots running out his nose and his eyes are rolled back in his head and that big.
2: And he's peeing all over he's his peeing legs. Peeing all over yeah, himself
3: that's... and that big old racks back there. Sounds like me oh. Saturdays. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so now, and one of the reasons uh, that we've been able to increase our elk tags is we've changed the way that we count elk. Mm-hmm. So uh, the last two years, we've been able to um, fly the elk range, and there's a certain number of elk out there with radio collars on, so we know where those elk are, and uh, that. Airplane has a really high-definition camera on it, so it's recording everything it sees, and then they're classifying them as, you know, bulls, cows. Um, But we can tell if they saw our collared elk or not. Mm -hmm. So then they use a statistical formula to determine how many elk are out there. And uh, because of that, we were able to uh, come up with a number that, you know, there's more elk on the landscape than we believed. And because there's more elk out there, in turn, we can have more elk tags, which was really exciting because our people like elk
1: you know? yeah i mean it's 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 exciting because i mean people that aren't from pennsylvania if they don't if they don't know and you want to see giants right it's like people will talk about new mexico right for for giant elk or just name any you know whatever western state you want to name and you want to see truly giant elk go to like go to Benizette and yeah. and hang out late august early september and just stay in a camper for a couple of days and listen to them rip and just, and, and, and go try to catch up with one or two of them and just, and see them. And you will walk away seeing some Magnum elk that you'd be hard pressed to find anywhere else. We had the
3: sixth biggest elk ever killed in North America killed last year. Jeez.
1: What what was it? What did it score?
2: 455.
3: A lot. lot, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 450. It was giant, 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 giant bull.
2: We'll talk about the elk range though, Dave, because we're getting a lot of people, saying, hey, why can't elk be here? Why can't, why can't we get elk over here? And just talk about why our elk range is where it's at.
3: Our elk range is in north central Pennsylvania. So it is north of Route 80, south of Route 6. Um, and then it would be west of Route 287 and east of 219. And the reason that that's picked is it's 70% public lands. Okay. Uh, one of the problems we have with elk is when they get on private property. Um, so imagine a half dozen deer in a cornfield. Farmer doesn't like it, but it's not the end of the world. Now, put a half dozen elk in a cornfield. Like, they just decimate It's like putting a half dozen cows in a cornfield. It's exactly (laughs) what it's like. So, uh, And that's where we run into problems, you know, that elk-human conflict. So uh, people always say, oh, we could put them in the Poconos, or we could put them in the Allegheny National Forest, or we could put them down in, you know, Bedford County. But Mm. what you would end up doing is you would have that huge uh, landowner conflict, and we don't want to do that. you know, we already run into issues with them when they get to the edges of their range. Like, as mm-hmm. we're moving southeast there, you know, we have a lot of crop damage issues. Same thing as the southwestern part of their range. They get down into that agriculture-Big Woods interface, and mm-hmm. they cause a lot of problems. So the reason that the elk range is picked where it is is because of the large amount of public land where we can hopefully keep those elk uh, away from trouble, and right, essentially. Re- and it's remote, to the road oh, it's,
2: system. I mean, it's, you don't, you know wilderness like around harrisburg people would be hitting elk with cars and it wouldn't be a good deal yeah it
3: really wouldn't be so
2: yeah
1: the uh what's the um carrying capacity of that area for for a herd number roughly you
3: know know, that is something that i i do not know i know jeremy banfield our elk biologist told me that he had always hoped to like double the elk herd what's it at now um it depends on what the numbers are but like i would say it's probably you know 14 to 1600 something like that when he started i love you're putting him on a spot right here making me this is making me feel good uh when he started (laughs) i think it was under a thousand so you know I, i believe his goal was always to have like maybe around 2000 elk but um a lot of it just depends on you know like i said we issued more tags this year because we had a lot of you know human elk conflicts right and um they're doing a lot of research up there cuz I'm not sure that anybody really knows what the carrying capacity is uh you know we're doing some browsing studies they're doing mm-hmm. some uh calf recruitment studies so it's uh, a lot of stuff going on with Pennsylvania elk right now right. and hopefully by the time all that research is done we'll have some better answers for you right and but,
1: how much do they will they travel in like a given given year right cuz aren't they and correct me if i'm wrong like they're not um they're not migratory right but they're
3: they're, they're, they're so they do have summer and winter ranges. Um, it's just not as drastic as out west where they might move, you know, a hundred miles. Mountain
1: ranges. Yeah. Right.
3: Um, but you know, they'll have, you know, the elk will be up on top of the Quahana plateau in, in the summer and early fall and then they'll go down into the stream bottoms to winter in the in the winter. So some of those movements might be, you know, ten or fifteen miles. Uh some of the bulls, you know, travel great distances. Some of our radio collared bulls, they'll um You know, you'll have one all the way down on, like, the southwestern corner of of the range, like, right above Route 80, and he'll go and uh, travel up to Benezet to Mm -hmm. rot. So, you know, they do make those movements. um,
1: Like a whitetail would, but just a larger.
3: Larger, yeah. Um, You know, the one bull, a a really big bull, was killed for crop damage um, a year ago, and he was killed just above route 80 in center county like just off the milesburg exit and Mm -hmm. he would rut every year on the other side of the on the other side of the river over in pottersdale Mm. so i don't know what that distance is but probably 20 miles or something like that between his rutting grounds and where he spent the rest of the time so you know they're big i mean they can travel like if you've hunted elk you know you you bounce one and, and you know you you bounce a buck and he might run 300 yards and circle back around to his bedroom. You bounce an elk. And the last thing you see is him going over to the next drainage and he's still running or still the hollow. state line or the state. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, uh, and I did have the experience that you're, that you were describing my, my only trip out to Montana, a buddy of mine who's from Bedford moved out there and went to college, uh, I guess at Montana state is what it was. I think if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, my cousin and my other friend will always go out and hunt with them every year. And they, they invited me to go out and I finally was able to make the trip. And uh, we were hunting together and we were there for two weeks and I hunted a wallow for a couple of days and then we split up and, you know, I was, I was hunting this, you know, these drainages uh, down to this big kind of like open like Valley or whatever. We were all going to meet there at the end of the day or whatever. And I saw what in my mind was a big bull. It, you know, it was a six by six. I don't know how I can't score a bull like I can a white tail. You know what I mean? It's like I have no clue. I just saw like a lot of, a lot of bone and I was <laughs> happy to try to kill it. And, uh, we saw each other about the same time and he took off and that was, that was it. Right. And so we were hunting this other mountain range and, uh, my buddy Luke and he and I were hunting together and my cousin and our other friend were hunting together and they went on the other side of this range. And we took, you know, the other side of it. And we were just kind of going to hunt around the whole thing and then kind of meet up in like midday or whatever. And, uh, we got down where we were kind of glass and just kind of listening. Cause it had this big ravine and this big drop off and he'd hunted this area before. And he's like, usually they like to hang in this particular area. Right. So we're listening and we can hear like one bull. sounds like the herd bull ripping down in this ravine. Clearly sounds like the herd bull. And then there was another bull that was kind of like off to our left. And there was another bull that was kind of like off to our right. They kind of felt and sounded like they were satellite bulls. Right. And I didn't care what I was going to shoot. You know, it didn't matter to me. I wasn't there for the biggest, you know? And, um, uh, the one to the left, like, he clearly must have got his butt kicked at some point because we called and he was like, yeah, I'm out of here, dude. Like, no chance. The one that was over here to our right, like, he would come in, get to about, like, 60 yards or so, and then he would back off and we would cow call, call to him a little bit. and He would come in about 60 yards and, like, bugle and they would back off. He just wouldn't break, like, this zone. And, like, you could kind of tell it's like he probably has been whooped once. Maybe not that bad, you know what I mean? Because he still wants to play the game,
2: but he's he's doing drive by.
3: He's doing drive by. Exactly (laughs) what he's doing.
1: So what we did was he was like, you know what we're gonna do? He's like, I'm gonna call. And when he bugles, he's like, he can't hear. We're gonna run. You know, he's like, and we're just gonna start running toward him. I was like, all right. So he would call. He would bugle while he was bugling. We would run. We we counted like his bugle, like how long he was like one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi. Stop. Right. So he basically had like a three to four Mississippi to run before his bugle would stop. So we'd run and we'd do it again. And we finally broke like his comfort zone. We must've got just far enough away from that herd bull to where all of a sudden it sounded like he was probably like 50 ish coming on maybe 40 yards, a bunch of dark timber. So we couldn't really see, but we broke the barrier. Cause now he, like he was getting closer. We could hear him. Right. My buddy Luke looks at me. He's like, Hey, I'm going to walk up on the side of the mountain here. He's like, I'm going to call up there and try to pull him by you broadside. So you get a clean shot. And I was like, okay. So I'm standing there looking and he goes to move and I just grabbed him. I'm like, dude, hold on. He's like, what? I'm like. He's right there. I just saw like antlers coming through like the the dark timber, and uh, it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Like I'd never seen an animal that big that close it's like before. A pickup truck
2: with horns. Oh with yeah, antlers. it's like
1: it looks like a dinosaur. Sorry. you know. And uh, so as he's getting closer, like he's not stopping. He's just walking toward us, right? And I'm like, so we were behind this down tree. There was a limb between he and I. He was standing here, and I was standing here. That bull gets to about twenty five yards. We were both at full draw. And it's like, if he turned that way, he had the shot. If he turned this way, I had the shot at like 25 yards. He just rips his head back. Just like, and it just goes straight through your chest. Like Mm -hmm. nothing I'd ever felt before. And he turned his way and he ended up sticking him right through the heart. He walked 40 yards, piled up. And that was it. That was a part of it. Oh yeah. It was, it was unreal. I mean, I wish I would have released the arrow of course. Right. But it was just unreal to kind of have that big of an animal just scream in my face, you know, and then be able to harvest him. And it was, it was one of the best days on the mountain, man. And I would love to be able to do this in Pennsylvania. I I buy a point every year and eventually I'll start getting the application for the license. And hopefully, you know, at some point in my life, get one, but he didn't bring a headlamp or a pack or anything. So I had like a headlamp and I had a pack and he was like, well, let's take the shoulder and and a quarter off of him. And then we'll, it was supposed to get cold at night. He's like, we'll let him here. We'll come back in the morning. Hopefully bears or nothing get into him or whatever. And then we'll come back and take care of him in the morning. I was like, all right. So we use my pack. I've got a shoulder on my shoulder. He's got my pack with a quarter in it and it snowed. Right. So we're walking through snow and it's like a two mile walk back to like where the, the truck was parked. I'm like, you got a headlamp. He's like, no, so I was the only one with the headlamp. So I'm leading and my headlamp dies. Like <laughs> we were like two feet from the bull at this point. So we had a full two mile walk back through that. We're like just carrying this bloody
2: and you're
1: we weren't in grizzly oh, country. Okay. No, no, no. We were in Southern Montana uh, near Dillon is where we were at. Um, but still I wanted to kill him. Cause it was like a brutal walk back and it would have been rough just like with light in general, but add the snow and the elevation. It was just, it was a miserable. I was like, if it was like, if we get back and don't die, I'm going to kill you. You know, it's like, but we went back the next day and me, my cousin, my buddy and my buddy, Luke who shot the, shot the bull. We basically just spent the entire day there and took care of the bull, butchered him, made a little fire, roasted some backstrap on a stick, pulled off some bark off the tree, laid down, took a nap, you know, made a whole day out of it. And it was like by far one of the best experiences I've ever had in the timber, just experiencing that with like a couple good friends, you know, and living off the land, at least for that brief moment, I felt like I was where I was supposed to be.
2: All this aside, that's what hunting's all about. That's it. And you can go and have a good time with your buddies and just take it all in like that. Yeah. Nothing better than it. I mean, ever. I mean, you'll remember that to oh. put you under dirt. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. what it's all about. hundred
1: percent. And I hope I get, I hope I can do something like that here at some point, you know, that's my, whether it's elk or I mean, in, in a, in a smaller way, it's the same thing whenever killing deer around here, you know, it's like my buddy Wilson shout out to him. He just moved to Idaho. Lucky, lucky SOB, you know, he's out there in elk country, but, uh, he, uh, he was always my first phone call, you know, when something happened and you know, he would help me, get something out if I needed to, or if I didn't need help, I'd just call him and let him know what was going on. Or my drive back from hunting, I would call him. And that's, you know, that's like what hunting is, is, is that kind of, that kind of part of it. It's that fabric. And we have that in spades in Pennsylvania, you know, and that's what, it just makes me excited that the hunting's
2: getting, it seems like it's just getting better and better every, every year. It is. It's, it's amazing. One thing I want to say about elk and you said it like one day, but here's, here's the thing about elk. You want to how a draw tag in Pennsylvania? How's that? You got to put in. Got to put in, yeah. And and a lot of people think that they can't do it. But, I mean, if you want to hit Powerball, you got to play Powerball. I mean, nobody ever hit Powerball that didn't buy a ticket. And I'm not saying that for any more reasons than – all you got to do is put – you got to put in for the draw if you want to hunt elk. And and that's –
3: it's pretty simple. I mean – Yep. And if you get a, if you get an elk tag, then you just rearrange your other plans if That's you right.
1: can. Yeah, I know. It's like, and I keep going back to the whitetail thing because it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because this year it already had Kansas planned. Next year, I think is going to be more of a. Uh, is my buddies draw in Iowa next year, and I won't be able to draw until the year after. So I think next year will probably be like my travel trip will probably be to Missouri or Nebraska. Um, as long as it's not like a draw state, I'll probably those years buy my elk application or buy the tag or try to buy the tag. That way, if I get it, then I don't have like gotcha. a another tag that I've already like bought and paid for something to more do those, you know, the elk thing, whenever I am doing an over the counter hunt somewhere that that's my, that's my planned trip, so to speak. But this year, Kansas was already in the, in the, uh, in the cards, but Pennsylvania's got a lot of exciting stuff, man.
2: You know, we're just so diversified. We're Mm -hmm. pretty darn lucky. And and the other part of it that before we escape on another tangent, the public land opportunity, Mm -hmm. if somebody Mm -hmm. wants to start hunting or, when I see somebody say, I don't have a place to hunt, we take it for granted how many opportunities you have, whether it's the land that we own, the, mm-hmm. the game commission and, and the hunters, the state game lands, whether it's our private land folks that are cooperators and, mm-hmm. you know, or, you St- know, our state forests. Yeah. Our, our, and I didn't realize agencies. there were as
1: many as, uh, as many cooperators as there are like landowners that, you know, and I didn't realize that until just recently, I was looking around some areas that I hunt and was just saw a different color on the map. I was on the, the, the PA game commission map that you guys have. And I was really looking for like clear cuts and, you know, burns and stuff like that. What, as I was going out to scout in different places and I started seeing, I think it was this purple color pop up. And I was like, what is this purple color? And I kind of like, I think it was purple. Don't quote me on that. But I was looking, I was like, Oh, this is walk-in access, essentially, right? It's like it, it's it's very similar to what you would have in Kansas with walk-in, per, you know, permission. You still need to go up, and I think if I'm not mistaken, go talk to the yeah, landowner and to ask, say you have to get permission. Yeah, and go so up it, to them and say, depends. hey. access.
3: There's there's some where it's like um, a water authority may own it or mm-hmm. uh, commercial timberlands who are signed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, those you're allowed to just, you know, because there's no point of contact. You know, right. you can just go on and hunt. But if it's a private farm you should still get permission.
1: right. And that's what I was looking at. Some private farms that were around where I typically hunt, where I was like, Hmm, this wouldn't be a bad area." Cause I know there's some good deer here. This, they might be spending some time over here during rut or whatever the case was, or it had like a really nice little hedgerow into like a block of timber where I'm like, Ooh, nice little pinch point, mm-hmm. you know? So I was kind of scoping some of the, some of those out, but you brought up an interesting point where it's like water authority or whatever the case is. There's a lot of township kind of, you know, parcels especially in and around where i live you know and i'm always curious like are you able to hunt those is there a way does how do you get access to those or is that just kind of like a, a little bit of a bermuda triangle to a degree when it comes to hunting
3: uh, what you need to do is actually just check with the township so yeah. some some townships allow hunting some allow hunting by permit mm-hmm. and some don't and right. some of them break out their parcels you know depending on on which parcel it is you know like if it's not suitable for hunting they may not allow it but if it's a wooded tract or something like that right um they might let let people on there so i would suggest people would just you know check in same thing with county owned properties as Mm -hmm. well now some of those are actually enrolled in our public access program um not a lot of them but some sometimes you know counties do enroll and Mm -hmm. And then they don't have to really wear anything you you'll see like a game commission sign right similar to like what would be on a game lands and and that would also be on those water authorities and uh you know um the timber company lands and stuff like that as well. If you see a game commission sign, there's pretty good chance that that land is enrolled in one of our access programs right
2: isn't it isn't it correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it like 7 million acres or 6, six
1: I was just going to ask acres? like, what, well, how much, how much, or do we have in public land or where do we rank in terms of like the states?
3: I do not know what that, I know, you know, the game commission has over a million and a half acres. And I think there's over 2 million acres of state forest.
2: And two, the the
3: ANFs like, over 500,000 acres. And, that's uh, national forest. Yeah. That's national and forest. And I think
2: there's close to 2 million of hunter access properties. Yeah. So it's, you know, right around that number. And, you know, I don't know where we rank, especially east of the Mississippi, but it's pretty strong. Right. Yeah. And especially like the state game lands that are heavily managed for mm-hmm. wildlife. You yeah. know. And so many folks confuse state game lands and state forests. Right. You know, yeah. and yeah. there's a big difference.
3: Yeah. And, and I can tell you, you know, I've hunted, I've been fortunate. Uh, I've had access to private land and I've hunted a lot of it, but over the last few years, especially like as you go north further in Pennsylvania, there's actually less hunting pressure on our state lands than there are in a lot of the private lands. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just you can <laughs> edit that right out, but like I was, I was shocked by that. You know, I've always heard that, you know, game lands are over hunted. Da, yeah. da, da. And, um, you know, I've hunted up there a lot. I, I like to go up there in rifle season because mm-hmm. like you said, your boundaries are almost limitless. So, you know, you can park, go out and still hunt all day long mm-hmm. and never have to worry about, where you're going because yeah it, it's a huge chunk of, of land that you have access to and as soon as you get off the road like within sight of the road you just don't see anybody i mean <laughs> yeah. like
2: we, nobody we that. went turkey hunting the first monday of the season this year the first monday on public ground didn't see a soul and never left a goblin turkey till we had to
3: get Too to it to leave we had yeah to go
2: yeah that, the uh, i'm sorry go ahead
3: i was gonna say and the same thing happened the previous like uh, the year before, same thing. You know, like you get up there, and as long as you're willing to walk, you don't have to walk that far. Like mm-hmm. you think, oh, my gosh, I have to walk seven miles in. No, you don't. Like if you could walk a half mile right? or put some terrain between, you You know, either climb or go over and drop down, mm-hmm. you're probably going to be by yourself.
2: And yeah, just, just like you said, e-scout or snipe your buddy's ideas or his spots on his phone. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was one of the reasons why I was – headed headed north you know going up to the Poconos was that because I've got some good I got some good stuff around me but I do live in a populated area you know what I mean so I'm going to get you know more pressure than the average bear probably right just by proximity right so I just adjust right so what I end up doing is I start I end up hunting a lot more mornings before work and stuff like that and I'm yeah. fortunate to where I can go in a little bit late my boss was super cool even with this new gig that I have he was like hey if you need to go hunt in the morning just send an email so you're gonna be in eleven. <laughs> you know, so asterisk COVID. They were good. Right, right. You know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I'll try to do some of that where I'll try to hunt in the morning or whatever before work during the week. That way I'm getting in whenever there aren't other people there and I kind of stay out of spots on the weekends or whatever. Um, but that was partially why I was headed up, you know, North a little bit because I had suspected lower population density, larger parcels of land means i should have more room between me and somebody else whatever the case is and then i confirmed that i saw a couple guys that were scouting or not scouting they were walking up there where i was at and i just stopped being neighborly and was like how you fellas doing and they said good you what are you up here for you know i was like oh i'm up here scouting for deer and they're like oh get some pressure for rifle season and i was like okay i was like how about bow hunting how about archery season he's like oh archery season in turkey he's like you won't see a soul you know and i was right. like all right. It was like, sounds good. You know, so I'm at the right spot then, you know, and that's, I think that's the misconception. I think, you know, there's adventure and fun to be had out there. If you're willing to just go look for it a little bit. Oh, and that's part, that's the part that I really like. And I think the audience of this podcast particularly are all kind of, of that kind of mindset. It's like, we want to find the adventure. We don't expect it just to come to us, you know? And I think, um, I don't know. And I think that that's one thing it, it, for me, I'll put it this way. Like Pennsylvania sharpened my skills. You know, when I go out of state and hunt, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm ahead. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. to speak, you know what I mean? Like, and I was talking to Steve Bartilla one time I had him on this show and he literally said, he was like, I think some of the best hunters he's like that I know and have ever met. He's like come from Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. He's like those three States. He's like, if you can kill deer there, he's like, Psh. he's like, you can go anywhere else. He's like, it's just, you know, it's a more target rich environment, you know what I mean? And, and I've definitely kind of, I've hunted enough States now that where It's like, I've definitely have experienced that where it's like, I feel like hunting here has made
2: me a much smarter and better hunter when I go other places. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. One thing I wanted to just hit on what you said about, and, and I honestly think, and I I'm guilty of this myself. And I think it's something we have to think about when it comes to introducing new people to hunting mm-hmm. and, good point. Um, my daughter's 20 years old and I've spoiled her when it comes to hunting. Like she loved to hunt turkeys, but to me, it was, I was always measuring success and pulling the trigger. Mm -hmm. And instead of teaching her how to at a young age, like my dad taught me and his dad taught him how to be a hunter first. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the important thing. It's, you know, we always, we always want to measure success and it's great. I mean, that's the, that's the end all. You go out to do that. Right. right, but we're, we're missing a lot of steps in between that I think are so important to new hunters. Right. You know, you for instance, I use this a whole lot. I mean, if you took 10, 14-year-old hunters that, you know, that, that have been out a couple of years, go out and say, show me a white oak. Right. I think it would surprise us how many wouldn't know the difference in what tree and, and what, you know, what just that simple yeah. woodsmanship that we learned at a young age sometimes we forget because of technology there's, you know, you want to learn how to deer hunt. You can listen you, to a podcast you, or go on YouTube. Yeah. Or whatever, and, and, yeah. and it's going to or learn how to Turkey hunt. And all of a sudden you, you know, you're lucky or harvest one or kill whatever you want to say. The first time you're out there, you think I know it all. Right. But there's so much more that we got to teach and, and, and being a hunter isn't just pulling the trigger. And I think that's one of the mistakes and I'm guilty of it that, that we make, we got to remember that it's, you're out there where those animals live every day they're they're in their house. Mhm. We didn't learn how to drive a car as soon as we learned how to walk. I mean there's, right. there's steps that have to be taken and if if we all can just put on the brakes a little bit or push in the clutch and think maybe I maybe I need to take a different approach to this when we're introducing somebody new. Yeah. I mean it it's not it's not called shooting or killing it's called hunting just right. like fishing. If it was catching we'd all quit.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean I always say, man, if you want to, you know, have a, a new perspective on hunting and maybe gain a deeper appreciation for it, then you already have like, you know, I'm obviously I'm pretty into hunting, right. <laughs> you know, I took a buddy, I guess it was two years ago who never hunted in his life. He fished, you know, he likes to fish, but he's never hunted in his life. He didn't grow up in a hunting family. You know, he's, he's shot like clay pigeons and stuff before. So he had handled a, a shotgun and stuff like that. And so turkey hunting was like an easy introduction for him. Like, cause it was like, all right, we can go out and turkey hunt. Cause it wasn't like deer hunting where it's like, all right, we got to get him into a saddle or something. Right. There was like just a higher barrier to entry. I had a shotgun he could use, you know what I mean? All that kind of stuff.
2: There's a lot of boredom in deer hunting.
1: There's a lot of there times that are doldrums that there's nothing going on. Yeah. And it was the smallest things. I got super excited. One because I was watching him just get pumped up about stuff that I take for granted mm-hmm. every time I walk into the woods. It was as simple as this: we got to where we were going to hunt. A buddy of uh, my buddy Wilson, again, he, awesome turkey hunter. He had some private permission on this one piece, and he was like, "There's usually birds there." He's like, "I roosted a couple there." He's like, "There should be birds there. That we'll hunt there," and he's an awesome caller. So he, we ended up going there. Super foggy morning. We get out and we get ready to walk in. And my buddy Trevor didn't tell me this until afterwards, because at first he was like, we're going to walk in there. I'm like, yeah, he's like, he's like, it's freaking dark out here. <laughs> like, because he's not like he's because he lives uh, like an ambler, you know, so, you know, and, he, and he's like and he moved back here. He's from New York originally, uh, uh, I think around the Finger Lakes but he lived in LA for a bunch of years. He's used to like the light pollution and stuff like that. And he's like, dude, it is dark out here. Like Like Bigfoot lives. Yeah. He's like, (laughs) he's like, we're going to walk in there in the dark. And I'm like, yeah, I was like, I got a headlamp. We're good. You know what I mean? He's like, we'll keep it on like red. So it's a little bit more dim or whatever. And it wasn't until like, we got back from the hunt that just that, and it wasn't a long walk. It was maybe 200 yards or whatever to where we were going to set up 300 yards tops. And that was adventure for him. Just that walk. Sure Cause he was doing it in the dark and he'd never done that before. He heard sounds he'd never heard before. Mm-hmm. Once it broke daylight, we heard a gobble, a fox rolled up to about 15 yards from us. He'd never seen that before. It was like all these things that I take for granted. I'm watching him and he's like, did you see that? You know, he's like, there was a Fox right there. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, like, yeah, I see him all, you know what I mean? But it's like, I see him all the time when I'm out bow hunting or whatever. But for him, it was like,
2: I mean, he might've well have been on a different planet. Yeah, we take a lot of things for granted. You know, I've got lots of similar things like that that's happened to me, and it's just, you know, you take that stuff for granted, but that's what we have to teach and let new hunters get the feel of, you know, not just about the end result, the whole process. And what it will do, it'll, you know, I know as a 12, we couldn't hunt. When I was growing up, we couldn't hunt until we were 12. Yeah, same. So I couldn't wait to be one of those people. And and I tried everything. I shot at lots of things with my slingshot that I shouldn't have shot. Same. At. <laughs> yeah. Just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, now that I work for the game commission, I'm going to plead. Good, Alex, you know, to come I'm clean. I'm way out of statute of limitations on <laughs> any of that stuff. But that's that's how we that's yeah. how we learned, and we learned what a white oak was. We learned what pokeberries were. We learned what grapevines were. Right. We went and caught crayfish in the creek and figured out the best rocks to catch those crayfish. And that's how we grew up hunting. Yeah. And we didn't get in a box blind over a greenfield field right. with a rifle. I mean, it's right. just, we and, didn't do that.
3: Well, and the thing you have to remember too is everybody hunts like for different reasons. Like yeah. last fall, uh, I was mule deer hunting in Montana with a friend of mine, my wife and my stepson, her son. And uh, my friend Bill and I both killed deer and, my wife and her son were out hunting together and we heard them shooting and they came back in and they're just hysterically laughing. And it ended up this big buck came, walked right down the coulee to them and they missed it at like 20 yards. And I had them, you know, one of the things that I had said is make sure you pick your brass up because I reload. And when they were picking up their brass after they missed, they both picked up live, shells so like not only did they miss it they were ejecting live rounds live rounds and like my friend bill said he goes and like they're they just like had the greatest time with this you know and Mm -hmm. and they were just like reliving it and laughing and like almost in tears and and billy goes oh my god he's like i don't know what's wrong with him if that happened to me i'd grab this handle of whiskey walk out onto the prairie and freeze to death he's like i couldn't live with this (laughs) but you know i just talked to her about it at dinner on friday night and she's She's like, oh, my God, that was like the greatest day. And yeah. they didn't kill anything. Yeah. But, but, you know, they still talk about that. Mm-hmm. So we have to make sure that we don't put our expectations of a successful hunt yeah. on somebody right. else. That's a, because that's a great point. Because everybody hunts for different reasons. Yeah. And, you know, one guy might want to go drink himself to death. The other person, it was like the greatest yeah. opportunity they ever had. I'm not and, letting
2: Dave Mitchell fool me, though. I took him to Alabama this January. And Alabama used to be, you could shoot a buck and a doe a day. Right. You know, now there's a little bit less liberal limits, but Mm -hmm. Dave was running out of bullets by the end. Let me tell you. Yeah.
1: Now I want to go to Alabama is one of those places that's on my list to go to because I want to go hunt the rut at like a really weird time. Cause they got like five ruts. Well, like
2: January. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause like when I'm done here, you know what I mean? Like, well, I mean, we got late season, but like when my ruts done, it's like, I would love to go to Alabama.
3: How fun is the rut in January? Oh my gosh. Well, first off you're in like a hoodie because right. <laughs> it's 60 degrees. You don't wear long,
2: long, no long johns.
3: <laughs> right. And they are running like the middle of November here. It, oh, they're man. just grunting and chasing and running and there's pigs and deer. And Oh boy. Well, and, and,
2: when we talked about cagey deer, mm-hmm. you know, how Pennsylvania's deer are cagey. Those deer come out with spots on them and they're the cage deer you've ever seen. Like really. You slow a truck down by a deer that you see in the woods and it's a Gone. it's a fawn. And right. you're like and there's nobody it's you know, there's been no people around it. It's just they're the And way they they're, have some good deer there
1: too. Yes, they, they do. They've got some good it's a little I have a couple buddies that live there and I've seen some of the deer that came out there. I actually did a fo- uh, video shoot for a client there. I was there for a couple of days. I forget what part of Alabama I was in now off the top of my head, but it was actually this old, not an old house, but it was like a really nice kind of like a like a family had passed away and left the estate to like something and they use it for events now and stuff like that. But they had like mounts up in, up in the, you know, in the the main living area or whatever and the guy who runs the property was there and i saw those mounts of course I me mean, as a deer hunter the first thing i said when i walked in i was like where'd they shoot those you know he's like oh back here and i was like gotta be kidding me!" And there was like a 150 over here and like a 160 over here and i was like man alabama's got some decent deer in this area and he's like oh yeah he hunt he hunted too and so we started talking he's like oh yeah he's like there's just, there's some gem spots around here that are just you know alabama. be hard pressed to find better
2: alabama is a great example of what happens when your deer Population gets out of control though, because I mean, the, in a lot of those places, they need to shoot lots, a lot more does, and, and it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, just overpopulated. How's yeah. How are our, our deer
1: numbers here? For the, yeah, for the for for PA. I
3: think they are. I well, think they're gonna are need as, a helmet. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think they're as high as they've ever been in the time that I've been deer hunting. And he's um, talking statewide. I'm talking statewide. That's a hard
2: thing for people to comprehend, right? Um, yeah,
3: and and one of the reasons for that is when I go in the woods, I look at things a little bit differently than a lot of people do. And when you look at the amount of browse pressure mm-hmm. that you can see, it shows a a very healthy and and growing herd. Mm-hmm. Um, And And we we, had a pretty bad winter this year. Yeah, yeah, we did did have it. And so I don't know what it's like today, but like last fall, it was, I mean, there were, I hunted a lot of different, like not a lot, but several different locations. And I I personally saw a lot of deer and I know a lot of the public land that I spend time on, Um, believe it or not there's probably more browse pressure on our game lands up North than there is on our game lands here in the Southeast. Hmm. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One could be a little bit site conditions, growing conditions, you know, like we can take a little bit more browse pressure because of the type of forests that we have here, but the other one is there's so much hunting pressure, um, that I believe that we're able to harvest a, a pretty decent number of deer, like the areas that you hunt out in Bucks County, mm-hmm. um, they were some of the healthiest forests in the state because we started bonus tags back in the late eighties and Mm -hmm. those game lands were getting hammered for 20 years where, you know, they just like shot doe after doe, after doe, after doe on them. And because of that, we were able to have those really good, healthy forests. But once you have a really good, healthy forest, suddenly you have really good quality food and now your deer are healthier. They're producing more fawns Mm -hmm. and and you can still have that good, healthy uh, deer population. So our deer numbers in, pretty much everywhere I've been in the state, I I think are strong. There's definitely huntable numbers as long as you're in good habitat.
1: Right. Yeah. It goes back to what we kind of started the conversation with, right? It's like you got to seek out where that good habitat is. It's going to hold, hold deer because there's a lot of critters that live there beyond deer and they all need slightly different things. And so the forests are kind of there to kind of, you know, provide those different things for, for, for the things that are going to live there.
3: Yeah. But I think we're going to have a great year this year. You know, one of the things, uh, that we're going to have this year as concurrent seasons during firearms season this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, which that's will... been
1: a hot topic. That was one of the things I got. <laughs> that was a question here from a listener who had a question about that. So uh,
3: and everybody thinks that we're going to decimate the deer herd, and that is not the goal. Uh, the goal is to provide opportunity for hunters, um, and we handle uh, you know population control by how many antlerless licenses that we issue. So mm-hmm. if you want to kill a thousand deer and you have a week-long season, maybe you need to issue uh, 4,000 licenses. If mm-hmm. you want to kill 1,000 deer and you have a two-week season, maybe you need to issue 3,000 licenses. So we'll adjust those license numbers accordingly to get the harvest that we want. Right. And uh, it's just going to provide more opportunity for, for people who maybe only have those first couple of days you know, of the season to hunt, and yeah. uh, it gives them an opportunity to kill that and there's And
2: there's kind of a misnomer about the last time that Concurrent went out you know, and, and that was to reduce the deer numbers right? and that was the mission of that concurrent uh, season. Absolutely. And this concurrent season, it, that's not the mission. The mission is like Dave said is opportunity. It's, it's purely opportunity. Um, there are some areas that, you know, CWD areas, um, My home, your Bedford, home, your yeah. home, where we're trying to, we are trying to reduce numbers there to try to slow the spread of that, that terrible disease. Right.
3: But if you look at, the agency as a whole over the last few years, we've been all about trying to provide more opportunity for hunters where we can. So the fall turkeys that Matt talked about, that was something where we had to bring that back because it was the right thing to do because we were concerned about our our turkey population numbers. But if you look at the expanded bear hunting opportunities that have been out over the last few years, you know, we've given people a lot of opportunity to hunt black bears, and and by all accounts, that population is doing very well. expanded elk hunting opportunities uh we have dove fields now mm-hmm. which are an amazing fun thing i don't know if you've experienced them at i all have i'm
1: terrible at dove hunting as well. i'm terrible at all bird hunting we'll just put it there <laughs> yeah,
3: part of dove hunting is the best is smelling gunpowder
1: right. right. who cares yeah, if you yeah, yeah it's right. all trigger time now <laughs> That's the, right. the, the the snow goose number got reduced like per day take did it or did it not
3: I would have to look at, well, it depends on what season you're talking about. The Canada goose season got reduced. We, in the Atlantic uh, population, they went from three to two to one this year. So
1: that's, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah.
3: The snow goose numbers I believe are, are not, but the Canada and that's, that's because of the migratory birds. So in Southeastern Pennsylvania, you have a really large resident flock, but those Atlantic population birds, you can't tell the difference. You know, Got so it. when you're out hunting, you don't know if you're killing resident birds or, or migratory, migratory bird. birds, so they had to reduce the numbers. Right. Okay, interesting. Um, but, you know, what the agency tries to do is we, we try to provide, as, like, like Matt said, we are hunters, and we know that hunters are our, you know, they're our constituents, and, and we want to use hunting as that management tool. And if we can provide opportunity without hurting the population, we want to do it.
2: Look at right. the early squirrel season. Yeah. What a, what a better way to get someone involved in, in hunting. I ab, mean, a yeah. good squirrel hunter can go anywhere in the country and mm-hmm. chase deer, turkeys or whatever. If somebody learns, I mean, it just teaches you everything. marksmanship, yep. how to read the woods. what Yeah. What, what they're feeding needs. on. Yeah.
3: Exactly. So, so we've tried to to provide those opportunities while we can, you know, right. uh, but sometimes we have to take something back and, and it, nothing's meant to be forever. You know, you have an opportunity to do something, but then when conditions change, we may have to pull back opportunities, but we may be able to give more opportunities somewhere else. So it's a constant ebb and flow based on wildlife population. And
1: that's why it's referred to as management.
3: You know, because
1: it's not, you don't set it and forget it. You know, it's like these things take care, right? And these decisions aren't made willy nilly, right? It's debated. There's science that's used to back it, right? It's like, that's the thing. I think people have to recognize that there's, carrying capacities right that different habitats have that you have to look at. Right. And when you talk to your biologists and stuff like that, they get a sense of what the landscape can, can hold per species, right. What the amount you need to remove from the landscape to make sure that that those animals are not dying of starvation or whatever, or decimating the, the habitat that's being used by a bunch of other things. It's like, and then you come to a number to be able to remove the amount of animals you need to remove or the amount of, you know, animals from that species that you need to remove to have a, a balanced ecosystem. Right. Because that's kind of the thing I think that people forget about, you know, hunters as well as non hunters, because you know, a lot of times non hunters are into preservation, not so much conservation, right. It's like, but we're past the preservation aspect of it because we have so much human intrusion everywhere that you have to actively manage it. You have to actively participate in providing the habitat or the reduction in numbers or whatever the case is. So they have, Something that resembles what would be nature, but it will never be natural per se, right? Because there's too much human intrusion at this point.
3: Right. And when you think about human intrusion and something that people don't look at, but the amount of invasive species, especially plant species, and what's happened to our native forests. You know, when you look, and a lot of this comes back to there's too many deer, but when you see an understory that has barberry and autumn olive and bush honeysuckle, none of those things are native. But the reason they're here is because people either planted them for cover because deer didn't eat them Mm -hmm. uh, or they escaped from somebody's landscaping and and they start to take over and then you get you know like mile a minute vine which Mm -hmm. which grows everywhere and japanese stoke grass which will choke out the forest Mm -hmm. you get all these things you know and, and most people just go out and they're like oh it's green it must be good right but but all all wildlife all those 480 species evolved with certain types of foods and certain type of habits that habitats that they had to live in and as we're altering it and changing that when people say well do nothing just leave it alone we're past that we're past that yeah um
2: yeah i laugh at that because at my place i have a little piece and they were showing me all the invasives they were at my place i'm like well it's green they're gonna eat it and a dang deer won't touch any of it looks great yeah but you know, it's not palatable to a deer unless he's, unless they're starving to death. Yeah. Then maybe, I don't know. Just to put something in their gut, like Mm -hmm. to not feel hungry, maybe might be, it might be at it at some point. You go to Saskatchewan where it's, you know, 30 below zero and they're eating tree bark all winter to survive. Yeah. You know, making it through those winters isn't easy. Yeah. That's
1: why it's like, you know, my father-in-law or my dad or whatever, when they ask they'll ask me like, Hey, what should we do with this old field that's over here? Like what should I put in it? I used to, want to put a food plot in it or you know and that would be usually my go-to and now i'm like let's burn it Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know it's just let's just burn it and let nature kind of let nature come back
3: and people don't realize like one of the things like you asked me about the crew at blue marsh who got that award the phillips award so we're converting that from largely row crops to native habitats and native habitats are um, native grasses and forbs. Well, forbs is just a fancy name for wildflowers. Right. So, a lot of your wildflowers, and that can be anything from, you know, goldenrod to, to, you know, black eyed Susans. But mm-hmm. uh, when you start doing research on those wildflowers, they're very high in digestible protein, super high in digestible protein. Yep. So, people are like, well, it's nothing but a bunch of weeds. Well, it's a bunch of weeds to you, but to that deer that's out there eating in it, it's what it's it, tailor made it, for it. It grew up, it, it evolved for hundreds of years eating those quote unquote weeds. It didn't grow up eating soybeans and alfalfa, it grew up eating those weeds. Yeah. And um, not
2: just deer, though, turkeys and oh, songbirds. Oh, turkeys and
3: songbirds, and songbirds and everything. Bees. Like, yeah, you know. yeah. It's the whole ecosystem. But when you look at a meadow, so uh, my wife and I have a, a small piece of property that I've done some management on, and the deer were eating. All these different flowers. So I took a very small area; it's probably the size of this room, and I fenced it with just a four-foot-high fence to allow these Jerusalem artichokes I planted to grow up. Mm-hmm. And it's in the middle of a three-acre meadow. I just walked by there yesterday, and inside that fence, the goldenrod and all the other forbs are about a foot higher than outside the fence, mm-hmm. and that's just from deer being yep. in there browsing on everything. But without that exclusionary area, just like Latham's acre, you would never notice it. Right, and that there native meadow is probably providing more forage, more, more natural, tonnage. more tonnage. It, it doesn't cost me anything than the food plot that I have planted up on the hill with, mm-hmm. you know, soybeans and, and lab lab and stuff in it. Yeah. Um, so,
2: which is like going out for ice cream.
3: Which is like going out for ice cream. Yeah.
2: I, and that, that was hard for me to swallow. Cause I'm, you know, I came from the food, like, yeah, we're putting this clover out. This is doing great things. And it is, mm-hmm. but it's attracting deer there because it's like,
3: I put his kid through college, you know, so that was a bitter pill to swallow. He, you know, he could have just stood up there and said, don't do anything. Just leave everything alone and burn it three times every third year. <laughs>
2: right. <laughs> so I'm learning. I'm learning the hard way.
1: It's all right, man. We all have to learn the That's hard right. way at some point, you know. But, man, I've kept you guys hostage here for about an hour and a half. I want to be sensitive to your time because I know we started this late. You guys were accommodating my work schedule so I could get out here later in the evening. But, you know, before we shut this thing down, I want to give you guys a chance to let people know where they can find out more about the Pennsylvania Game Commission, all the things you guys are doing, all the ways you guys are communicating with hunters, where you want them to follow you or 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 be engaged with you, and that to remind folks that license sales have opened and you can hit the uh, the the new fancy website. I liked it and uh, and get yourself some tags. So if you wouldn't mind, just let folks know where they can find out Okay, info.
2: Well, obviously, you can always check out our website um, pgc.pa.gov. Um, everything that we got going on is usually on our website for sure. If you're social media, we're, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, getting ready to start a TikTok. Oh, um, we're, uh,
1: Matt Moret dances.
2: No, is going on? no, I can't dance. <laughs> I can't dance, sing it. No, the only thing I can do halfway good is yelp on a turkey call. Not even that might be up for debate anymore, but, <sighs> um, you know, any of the social media channels, the biggest, here's my biggest advice in this whole country, there's 11.5 million hunters. In Pennsylvania, we have almost 900,000. We almost have a tenth of the hunters in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. We're all in this together. Bottom line is hunters, the game commission, conservation agencies, we're all in this together. And the more that we can work together and the more we can grease the wheel and be smooth and have understandings of, of what's going on, we're not always right. We're human. We make mistakes. And, and you know, we're, we're able to admit that. But we might have to give something a try sometime. But the better we can stay in touch with every, all of us, the better the future is going to be. And that's the most important thing that we have to look at. We, we can't look at tomorrow necessarily. we got to look a little bit farther than that. You know, in right. the world that we live in today, everybody wants something to happen now. Now, there's things that can happen now, but, you know, when when we can look in the future, make better opportunities, and make sure that hunting and trapping stays around for a long time that's our goal and that yeah. we
1: continue to have the strong heritage that we have absolutely it, it, it'll it look different 50 years from now everything will but right you'll still have Woolrich, you'll...
2: you'll still have wool rich black and red right you know in in the back of your mind that's that's right. our goal and yeah. you know we're, we're open lines i mean reach out let's talk about it you might not agree with it but let's figure it out how we can work together and maybe we can help you understand some of the decisions that are made and trust me when i say this and i say this as, as with with chill bumps with goose bumps we are hunters at yeah. the game commission we we and and you know I, I can speak for dave and on this one like if something if something doesn't feel right trust me it it's not just a gavel on the table and this is how it is it there's a lot of thought process nothing happens fast Right in, in, in the Pennsylvania Game Commission for the most yeah. part.
3: And speaking about some of those answers, if you're looking for them, uh, one of the things Matt didn't talk about was our YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been doing a really good job of putting informational, you know, short, you know, five six minute clips on why we've done things or how to do something. So mm-hmm. that's another good thing we, to look at.
2: We have asked PGC on our website, mm-hmm. which is a lot of the questions that I'm sure came through on on your social mm-hmm. channels. Those answers are right there, and yep. you know, the biggest thing that I can can say is be a little bit more investigative if you have something. There's no reason nowadays with all the information that's yeah. out there because, like, we'll put a post up right now. We hit you know, one of the legislations, one of the pieces of legislation we're trying to help is the pink envelope antlerless deer application. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, we are a little bit archaic. Um, yes, you have to still have to write a checkout, these kids. My kid doesn't have a checkbook. She would have no idea what a check is. If it's not plastic, right? You know, or green, she doesn't know what it is. But the only way we can fix it is we need everybody to get involved and go to their legislator. And we we put a post out a couple of weeks ago when we we're trying to gain, you know, and and everybody understand how this works. And the first thing, first twenty comments were like, "Yeah, it's, we you guys need to fix this. We're trying to. We're asking for your help." Right. So you know, just yep. just dig a little deeper in, into when when you're doing that, and you know. Yeah, you might not like us, but we have to work together because right. we're all in this together.
1: Well, it's just like it's like anything, you know, the old man always told me it's like don't show up to the party with the problem, show up with a potential solution.
2: I thought you yeah. were gonna
1: tell me the old old bull, young bull story, but we'll save that for another day. <laughs> 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 well, with that, fellas, I appreciate you I appreciate you guys having me out here. I hope this is the first of many that we get to kind of yes, together get together and hang out. Um, I'm enjoying my time here and uh always a good time talking, talking deer hunting and hunting in general. So I appreciate it.
3: Thank you. That's no, very good. Thanks.
1: All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and hell while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there too. It'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all.